If you will, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In just a moment, we'll begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 5. And we are going to read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know that we often do that, but it is quite beneficial to do it. And I find it will be a good thing for us today. Before we do, uh, um, I just want to say a public thank you. Um, you'll see these slides up here. Kathleen Pugh puts these things together. If it were up to me, it'd all be Comic Sans, you know, right in the middle of the screen, and uh, it, would, it would be pitiful. You might decide just for that reason alone you're going to listen to the whole sermon with your eyes closed. But... Uh, I am very thankful for the work that she does uh, in doing that. It is very uh, good. It is beneficial. Um, and so, thank you, Kathleen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible and you don't have it in front of you, it's on uh, page 809. If you don't know how to get around the Bible, I would encourage you to look at it because uh, we're going to read the whole thing, and it's easier to follow along if you're looking at it. All right? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and there, there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. 
Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Con consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, now in these moments we ask for your help. We pray by your Spirit that you will teach us. That we might understand your word. But more than that, that we might know you. And that we might know how to live for you, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A sermon can change the course of your life. Years ago, I was serving as a youth pastor up in Marion, Indiana, and a friend of mine asked if I wanted to ride down to Louisville to go to a one-day conference at Southern Seminary. A day out of the office sounded good. And a day getting to visit Southern Seminary's library and bookstore also sounded good. So I went. And the speaker that day was Alistair Begg. I don't know that I had heard him preach before that day, but he stood up and he opened his Bible and he announced his text as 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And he spoke on the power of weakness. He preached on Jehoshaphat, a king who was powerless and clueless, and yet a king who trusted the Lord and saw the Lord answer his cry for help and work and save his people. 
And all along the way, Alistair related it to pastoral ministry. And as I sat there in Heritage Hall, listening to him, I wept. I went back and listened to that message again this week, and I wept again. You see, I figured I'd be in youth ministry for so long, I'd be so old that they'd have to finally kick me out. That was the plan. I mean, I liked preaching, but I didn't know that being the pastor would be my thing anytime soon. And God used that sermon that day about the power of weakness in pastoral ministry to completely change the course of my life so that 18 months later I stood in the pulpit of Alta Loma Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee as their new pastor. I announced my text and I preached and have been doing so since. Maybe there's a sermon like that for you, a sermon that changed everything. Well, This sermon that we just read in Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7 is meant to be a life-changing kind of sermon. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount, not because it says says that anywhere in the Bible, but because St. Augustine called it that about 1,600 years ago. It's familiar to many. Many of the words that you just heard would be words that your friends, your unbelieving friends, know all about. But this sermon is not a nice collection of religious sayings. These are powerful words. They search the heart. This isn't chicken soup for the soul, you see. This is a scalpel. And Jesus picks it up to do heart surgery. And today we begin our journey through these three chapters with an overview. I want us to get the big picture of what this sermon is about. And the best way that I can summarize it all is this. Jesus calls those in His kingdom to live distinct lives. That, I think, is the thrust of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls those in His kingdom to live distinct lives. So this morning what I'm going to do is give you four statements that I think help us to wrap our minds around that. The first is that Jesus' sermon is for His disciples and for the crowds. Now, I'll be brief, but I want you to notice who Jesus' congregation here is, all right? If you start, go back to the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus heads up the mountain, and verse 1 says, His disciples come to Him. Verse 2 says, He opened His mouth and taught them, taught His disciples. Now, the disciples typically in the Gospels refer to the twelve disciples, Uh, Just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, Jesus had called uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, these fishermen, to, to come and to be His disciples. But more generally, the word disciples refers to those who follow 
Jesus, those who listen to His teachings in order to learn from them, those who watch His way of life in order to imitate Him. That's what Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples in that day, you understand. There were all kinds of teachers with all kinds of disciples, and a disciple sits at the teacher's feet and listens to his words in order to learn and watches his life in order to imitate. And today, we rightly say that Christians are disciples. We sit at the feet of Jesus, as it were, when we come to His Word, and we listen to His teachings in order to learn them and obey them, and and we watch His life and His ministry unfold in order to imitate Him. We follow Jesus. So when Jesus is teaching His disciples, He is teaching us as Christians. But as we see when we finish the sermon, they're not the only ones who are around. Go to the end of chapter 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. So the teaching is aimed at the disciples, as it were, but the crowds are listening in. And as you go through the, uh, the Gospels, the crowds, well, for the most part, they love Jesus. They listen to Jesus. They're amazed by Jesus. Crowds want Jesus to come to town so that He'll heal their family and cast out demons. But you see, when Jesus does things like teach on dying to yourself, those kinds of things are meant to separate the crowds from the disciples. You see, and in the end, the crowds are quite fickle, aren't they? On Palm Sunday, they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And you start your stopwatch, and it's not that much longer before they're saying, crucify him. The crowds are essentially like non-Christians. They like some things about Jesus, about his teaching. They like the Jesus who heals people. They like the Jesus who makes things better. But they don't follow Jesus. They don't obey Jesus. They're not disciples. And here, Jesus teaches disciples, teaches Christians, while the crowds, crowds, non-Christians, listen in. So, in, in that sense, anyone, everyone should be listening to what Jesus has to say. The second statement to make about the sermon is that Jesus' sermon is about the kingdom of God. Jesus' sermon is about the kingdom of God. Eight times in this sermon, Jesus mentions the kingdom. Mostly in Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of God because his audience is primarily Jewish and Jews avoid using the name God altogether. But the emphasis on the kingdom isn't actually surprising. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 4, you'll find that the kingdom is up front and center in all of Jesus' preaching ministry. Chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, this is what Matthew says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in case you thought that was a one-time thing, look down at verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, as Americans, we don't actually live in a kingdom. Many people are fascinated by the United Kingdom. 
They're fascinated by the royal family. They're fascinated by all the pomp and the circumstance, but we don't live in a kingdom. We can watch that kingdom. We can read about kingdoms, but there's still a gap in our knowledge. It's, it's like the difference between watching a sport for many years and playing the sport, right? You can learn a lot of things over the years. You can read a lot of things that teach you over the years, but there's something different, some, a different kind of knowledge that comes in actually playing the sport. Now, I kind of wish that would happen for my golf game, but it's not. I'm a slow learner. But that's what it's like when it comes to this kingdom business. There's only so much that we can know. And the fact is, if we went into it now, there are entire books on the biblical idea of kingdom. So we'll have to be, you, I'll have to speak in summary ways here. The idea of kingdom is about God's rule and reign. Now, in a sense, God rules and reigns over all things, every bit of the cosmos at every moment of human history. But typically, when the Bible speaks about kingdom, it means a particular expression of God's rule and reign. And it's helpfully summarized by Vaughn Roberts, actually in a book that's in our cafe called God's Big Picture. But here's his helpful summary, just three phrases, God's people, God's place, God's rule. God's people being in God's, living in God's place under God's rule. And now if you think about the storyline of the Bible, this is you begin to see this. If you go back to the beginning, we see an expression of God's kingdom there in the first few chapters of the Bible. Because you have Adam and Eve. These are God's people. These are the ones that He has made. And they are living in the place God has given them, in the garden. And they are to live under, and they are living under God's rule. God's rule was what? Well, He says to Matthew, He says to Adam, He says, um, you need to work the ground and keep it. Work the garden and keep it. And then he says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's God's people and God's place under God's rule, but they rebelled against God's rule. Later on, we see another expression of kingdom. This time, not in a garden, but in a nation. In the nation of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham. The nation of Israel is God's people living in God's place, in the land that He promised them, under God's rule, under the Mosaic law which God gave them, including the Ten Commandments. But again, as you read the Old Testament, you see, they don't want God to be king. They don't want God to be king morally, and actually they just like a human being to be a king like every other nation. Can we just have that? Because we don't want you to be king, God. We just want our own kind of king. We want to look like the rest of the world. Then yet another expression of kingdom comes when Jesus arrives. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not just out there in the future somewhere. It's right here and right now, and He is the king. So when it comes to the kingdom that Jesus brings with Him, His followers, His disciples, Christians, we are God's people, Jew and Gentile. And, but God's place right now is not outlined on a map. It's not geography like that. 
God's place is more like pins on a map or dots on a globe because God's place is everywhere that God's family gathers. God's place right now is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's place. Not this building, not 5500 Gray Road, but where we gather to worship and serve Him. God's kingdom is now. But that's not the end of the kingdom story. The Bible says, I mean, honestly, we were rebels against the kingdom before we ever came into the kingdom. And that Jesus fixes that problem. Jesus actually takes on all our rebellion for us so that we can come into the kingdom, so that we can be part of the kingdom, so that we can live under Him, live with Him forever. But the, the story of the Bible goes on, not only that the kingdom of God has come, that it is at hand, but that it's coming. You remember uh, later in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, He says that he's not going to eat and drink these things until, Matthew 26, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the kingdom is there, but it's not there. It's already here, but it's not yet here. God's kingdom has come, and yet God's kingdom will come. And when it comes, it'll come in its fullness. And God's people that day will be men and women from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, all those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will live in God's place, the new earth, and we will live under God's rule of righteousness. We will live under God's rule of peace. We will live under God's rule of joy, and we will live there forever, and nothing will ever disturb it again. That's what awaits us. You see, if, as you start at the beginning of the Bible and you keep going, the, the, the idea of kingdom grows like a snowball rolling downhill. It begins as two people in a garden, and it finishes with untold numbers of people on the new earth, all crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb on His throne. And this kingdom is Jesus' focus in the Sermon on the Mount. More specifically, the kingdom here and now, today. This is not, this is not a text we're studying for some time off in the future. This is not like Daniel's prophecies that he's hearing from God, but it's, it's about things that are happening in the future. This is this is what Jesus is saying that right here, right now, ought to impact the way that we live our lives. How we ought to think and speak and live and decide and be in relationships and all manner of things. Because in this sermon, we hear about entering the kingdom. We hear who, who the kingdom belongs to. We hear about greatness in the kingdom. We hear about who will be kept out of the kingdom. We're told we ought to seek the kingdom. But overall, Jesus teaches us about living as citizens of the kingdom, which brings me to our third statement. Jesus' sermon calls for distinct living. Distinct living. Now, God's always wanted His people to be distinct, to be holy, to be set apart. Set apart to Him 
which means not just being to him, but being set apart from the world. So in the Old Testament, after God rescues his people from slavery, and while he is leading them to the promised land, to Canaan, he says this in Leviticus 18, "...you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. You shall not walk in their statutes." You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. We see the same kind of thing in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says this, This I say to you and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This holiness, this distinction, this being different from those that are around us. And Jesus' message is no different. John Stott actually says that he sees the theme of the whole sermon summed up in the first five words of chapter 6, verse 8. Look at that. Do not be like them. Do not be like them. Well, who is them? Jesus actually has two different groups in mind as he's preaching this sermon. Do not be like them. Who? Do not be first. Do not be like the pagans. Do not be like the pagans. These are folks who are clearly not Jesus' followers. They're non-Christians. But look at these examples. Look right there in chapter 6, verse 7, about prayer. Do not pray like the pagans. Don't, don't babble on when you're praying as if, as if it's a magical formula, as if you can just say enough words that God will give you what you want. Don't do that. Don't be like pagans. Then also later in chapter 6, in verses 31 and 32, he says, don't be like the pagans and worry. Don't be like the pagans and be self-reliant. Don't walk around saying, what are we going to eat or what are we going to wear? Where are we going to live? That's what the Gentiles do. Don't be like them. You have a heavenly Father who loves you and provides for you. Don't be like them. And this distinction should actually be obvious. In chapter 5, look at verse 13, verse 14. You are the light of the world. And then notice verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. That's what Jesus is saying. The distinction, the holiness, the difference between the Christian and the world that is in rebellion against God must be clear. Do not be like them. But he's not just telling them in his sermons to not be like pagans. He also says, do not be like the pretenders, these hypocrites these religious pretenders. Don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes. They talk a great game, but their religion is just on the outside. It's just a show. We see this in chapter 6 when Jesus teaches on these spiritual disciplines. Look at chapter 6. Look at the beginning. I'm just going to read the beginning of three verses, 2, 5, and 16. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. If 
Verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't go to church to be seen. You know, there was a day, particularly in the South, that if you were going to run for office in your small town, it was a good idea to be a member of the First Baptist Church of that town and to show up and to be there and to be a deacon. And Jesus is saying, if you do that, your political office is the only reward you're going to get. There's no reward for showing off your righteousness. Don't be like them. Don't read the Bible or pray hoping someone will catch you doing it. That's what pretenders do. You must be genuine, or as Jesus put it in chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But why? Why more than a show? Why something more than just on the outside? Because of what Jesus says at the end of this sermon in chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not even necessarily those who say they prophesied in my name or cast out demons in my name or done many mighty works in my name. It's not enough, Jesus says. It's not enough. So don't be like the pagans, and don't be like the pretenders. Be distinct. And friends, this is a call that's meant to be obeyed. I don't know if you noticed it, but within what is good about the end of this sermon, there is a great tragedy at the end of this sermon. Jesus talks about those who are wise are those who hear His words and do His words. This is the key. This is life. This is what it means to hold fast in the storms of life. This is the only way you're going to stand at the end of life. Hear me. Believe me, Jesus says. And what is it that the crowds do? The crowds were astonished at His teaching. Where he was teaching them as one who had authority. Now, there's something wonderful about that, isn't there? Obviously, Jesus' teaching was different, but there's, there's no re- that's the only record we have. We don't have record of people walking away and Jim telling Bob, I have to do that. I, I can't live like I'm living anymore. Or a child walking up to her mother and saying, Mommy, I heard Jesus. I have to be different now. No, all they want to do is subscribe to his YouTube channel. They want to get his podcast. They want to get his e-newsletter. They want to talk about how he's better than this scribe and he's better than that scribe. Wasn't it just amazing? He just blows all the other preachers out of the water. Would you know what that gets you before the throne of God? Astonishment with Jesus' teaching? Nothing. He who hears my words, Jesus says, and does them, does them, 
Now, that's the way many people still look at Jesus as a great teacher, maybe even the greatest. I wonder if you're not a Christian this morning, I wonder how you see Jesus. Who is he to you? I wonder if it's possible you might have gotten Jesus all wrong up to this point. And you need to reevaluate how you see him. That he's not just a great teacher. That he's not just Jesus the genie who can make my life better if I pray the right prayer or live the right way. He's something more, something different. For us who are Christians, we hear this call and we need to look in the mirror. And we need to ask, is my life distinct? Or is my life just like my friends' lives? Is my life just like my co-workers' lives with a dash of church added in? Do I actually blend in with the darkness of the world or do I shine as a light for Jesus Christ? Jesus' sermon calls for distinct living. Last statement. Jesus' sermon is impossible apart from Jesus. Jesus' sermon is impossible apart from Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson uh, writes that there are some who see this uh, sermon as a message calculated to produce the greatest possible guilt in the fewest possible chapters. I don't think that's what Jesus is aiming at, but you get what he's saying, right? I mean, if you read it with an open heart, it's not going to take long before you begin to get convicted to see that this distinct life is an unachievable life, that this is an undoable to-do list. After all, I can avoid murdering someone, but not hate people in my heart? How can I possibly do that? Yes, I can avoid adultery, but, but not lust? Is that even feasible? Jesus, what are, what are you saying? Are you really saying that every word and every commitment I make matters? Jesus, go back and read the manuscript. Did you see that you said that persecution is a blessing? Jesus, are, we're supposed to return good for evil and go the extra mile? Now, come on, Jesus. You're saying that I'm not supposed to worry ever in my life. That's impossible. Yes. Yes, it is. You see, before we can even begin to think about living the sermon, we must be first changed by the preacher of the sermon. John Stott put it this way, The standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's reach is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth. Don't you kind of feel that as you read the Sermon on the Mount? If anybody's going to do this, they can't just be them. There has to be something more. 
I'm going to have to be different if I'm going to actually do this. Now, you may not understand that phrase, new birth, but it's an important one, particularly when it comes to the kingdom, because Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth, being born again, is an act of God. It is not actually something we do. It is something that God does. And what He does is He takes those who are dead in, his, in sin and gives them spiritual life. You see, our spiritual lives don't begin when we pick up a few religious habits. Our spiritual life actually begins when God picks us up out of the grave and gives us life. The new birth is when God takes those who are blind to His truth and gives us sight to, to see our sin, to see Him as beautiful, to see Him as wonderful, to see Him as the one that I want, to see Him with eyes of faith. He takes those whose hearts are made of stone and are turned away from Him, and He gives them new hearts, hearts that turn back to God, hearts that hate sin and love holiness and want more than anything to honor Jesus Christ. The new birth means that the old things have passed away and everything's been made new. You see this sermon, which is to the disciples within earshot of the world, this sermon about the kingdom of God, this sermon about living distinct lives is impossible unless you've been born again unless you have the Spirit of God, unless you have spiritual life, unless you've been made a new creation, unless you are part of the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible apart from the preacher on the mountain, Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection removes the barrier of sin that stands between mankind and God's kingdom, and His Spirit gives life and lives within us and empowers us to live in a way we never could live apart from Him. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We cannot take the Sermon on the Mount and create a blueprint for a different kind of society. Without a change in the heart, nothing else changes. It may all look good on paper, but it'll all end up like a New Year's resolution, forgotten in two weeks to try again next year. And so over and over again, throughout His ministry, and even this morning, the words of Jesus call to us, call to you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friend, don't look to Jesus for a little inspiration. Don't look to Jesus for a to-do list so that you can earn a right standing with God. Look to Jesus with eyes of faith. Look to Him crucified, resurrected, risen, and coming again, and there you will find a Savior. And then listen to His sermon and find a vision for your life in His kingdom. Friends, hear the call of the kingdom and turn your eyes to the King. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You thankful for these words, thankful for so much truth 
packed into such a small space. We pray, God, that you would help us to take seriously Jesus' call to live distinct lives, to not be like our co-workers, to not be like our friends at school, to not adopt the value systems that they have, those who don't follow Jesus, to see as normal and acceptable that which the world sees as normal and acceptable. And God, we pray that you would keep us from hypocrisy, from putting on a good show, from the veneer of Christian faith. We pray, God, for the grace to not be like them. Not in any way so that we could think or say that we are better, but so that we would not be like them and instead be like Jesus. Make us a church that are not like the pagans. Make us a church that is not like the pretenders. And I pray that any who are pretenders, God, that you will arrest their attention and give them genuine faith. Make us not like pagans or pretenders. Make us like the preacher of this sermon. We pray for his sake and in his name. Amen. Amen.